Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. So this morning, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of faith alone, or um, another way that I'm going to be using that word interchangeably is with the doctrine of justification, or justification uh, by faith alone. And I'll explain those words and why those are interchangeable throughout this time. Um, but I had an amazing time preparing this for a few reasons. One, because it, it is one of those subjects that is just so simple, right? I really only could do this in five minutes, uh, but we would just kind of be hanging out for the next hour because it, it really is that simple, right? The, the doctrine of justification or the gospel is simple. You know, I could take out a napkin, share the gospel with you in a few moments, um, and I think you would have an, an accurate and full understanding of the gospel. But it's also really complex. <laughs> uh, you know, that, no one else laughed at that, but when, when you're, it, was, it wasn't really a joke, but it's like when you're preparing something, it's, uh, what's the word? Uh, it's a paradox. Paradox. So it, it seems like it's one thing, but at the same time, it's something else. And really, that's, you know, what the doctrine of justification is. And we're going to talk about when Martin Luther says, uh, what, what does he say? Sinner and just at the same time. It's a paradox. It doesn't make sense. And so it does take a lot of time explaining it. But I think there's other aspects of life that are similar to this that uh, seem so simple. But when you kind of dive into it, it's pretty complex. So you think about paintings. Um, you know, Vincent van Gogh's most famous paintings are just, like, I feel like anyone could do it. It's like a picture of sunflowers. I, it, I could see 10 pictures of sunflowers, and I could not tell you which one was Vincent van Gogh's, which is worth tens of millions of dollars. But when you look at the painting, you begin to see the complexities and the beauty uh, and the art of what he did. Another good example of this is in football, and today's a you know, special day because it's the day that the Bears restore the hope for the Super Bowl today. So if they lose, don't talk to me till next Sunday. But if they win, feel free to give thanks to me. Um, but people think the most beautiful plays in football are the ones where uh, it's an absolute miracle or the running back breaks like 10 plays and somehow evades his way through defenders to score a touchdown. But the most beautiful plays in football are the ones that are perfectly executed. It's just a simple handoff to the running back, and each person on the offense, the quarterback, the offensive line, the receivers, the fullback, just does their job. They block the person they're supposed to block. There's an open hole. The running back goes where he needs to go and gains yards to, to move the ball forward down the field. And you don't think about those plays, right, because you just expect them to be kind of the status quo of the game. But when you slow it down, break it down like you would a painting, you begin to see the intricacies and the beauty of the play. So, when Martin Luther says that justification is the article by which the church stands or falls, there's a lot of weight and significance on those very few words. Uh, would you guys say, this is an actual question, that you believe those words to be true? Why or why not? That justification, uh, if you're familiar with the term, is the article, article by which the church stands or falls. Is that true? Why or why not? 
Okay, yeah, absolutely. What else? If you don't believe that, then there's something else that you need the gospel to include. Mm. Yes. It requires more than just faith. Right. Absolutely. What else? Yep. Yes. Absolutely. What else? Dang it. <laughs> Small font every time. I promise that on my computer screen it looks way bigger than that. Um, that'll be the last time that we talk about the font of a PowerPoint, I promise. Okay. What else? Agree or disagree with Martin Luther here? Yeah, Blake. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, Martin Luther, he could he could have used a lot of nouns, but he he specifically talks about the church, that the church will stand or fall based on their issue of justification, and we see that. I mean, in in modern day America, a lot, right? Because at, at this point, um, you know, we have multiple different views on the doctrine of justification, uh, and we see the implications of, um, don't want to get too far off on this tangent, but I, I read an article one time. I, I was in my grandparents' house. I'm from Northwest Indiana, and um, the, Chica the Chicago Tribune did an article called Silent Night. This is way off track. This is not my notes, but I feel like it's relevant. Um, did an article called Silent Night, and the it, you know this is the Chicago Tribune. It's not at any way a, a Christian post. Um, and the point of the article was on how mainline denominations. There's it's, I think there's seven of the popular mainline denominations: Evangelical, Lutheran, United Methodist, uh, Reformed Church of America, and PCUSA, a few others. And how those churches, because there's uh, be. I, I, this is not the proper term, but because they're so wishy-washy on, on important doctrines that no one, no one is committed to those churches uh, because the, the, no one knows what they believe when they walk in the building. Um, and that at the end of the day, those churches, uh, albeit what people don't believe, are actually decreasing in membership across the country rather than uh, churches who are very clear on issues like justification. So uh, I was piggybacking off what Blake said, but this is significant with the church because do you know what your church believes? That's one thing I've always appreciated about being at Faith Bible and uh, being under Ernie's leadership and elders is I've never had to guess like where Faith Bible stands and um, I know where they stand most firm is in the gospel. So we're going to keep going with this. Anyway, uh, we haven't talked too much about Martin Luther in this class and, and we will as we keep going because... Um, you know, as we read quotes like this, the implications of what Luther's saying here are massive. Uh, if you get this wrong, everything that we do, specifically here on a Sunday morning, is for naught. If we get the issue of justification or the doctrine of justification wrong, um, everything else will go down with it. So, justification, uh, is, it's a legal term. So, paint a picture, you're in a courtroom, um, and you're on trial. You're the defendant, and uh, the prosecuting attorney has countless uh, pieces of evidence to send you to jail. You've done this, you have this on video, this, this, this. 
Uh, and at the very end, you're, you're going to get a sentence. And the sentence, in, in this case, is either heaven or hell. And you desire, in the courtroom, in this fictional scenario, one day will be true, um, or any courtroom scenario, you desire to be justified. In any sort of court case, the defendant wants to be justified. And what that is, is it's a legal declaration that you are innocent, that you can be set free, that you are good. That is what justification is, a legal declaration. And so this morning, we're going to pretend that we don't know the answer and that we want to find out how the judge can look at us and say, you are free, you are innocent, you are good, you are righteous. You can go to heaven. Um, And the reason why I think we need to do that is because um, the church around the world, especially in America, is is not firm on this doctrine. Um, We would say the Reformed Church is, but uh, there are are two other camps, I think, that we'll run into frequently that would disagree with this. Um, And I'm taking all of this information from Uh, their website, Books and Catechisms. So I feel like I'm saying this with integrity. Um, But the first is the Roman Catholic Church. And obviously we know that the Reformation was sparked as a result of the actions of the Roman Catholic Church. And in the midst of the Reformation, the Reformation also provoked uh, reactions from the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the main ones was what's called the Council of Trent. How many of you are familiar with the Council of Trent? Um, A few. So what the Council of Trent was is, is it was a, a gathering of leaders from the Roman Catholic Church say, hey, we need to get together. There's this movement sparking up saying that uh, you're justified by faith alone, through God's word alone, and we need to make sure that we're on the same page as a church on what we believe. And we, th- we think, you know, councils are, are good. We have councils all throughout church history, and many of them that we would say, okay, you know, Dort was one that I think we would side with, and Westminster Confession of Faith in a lot of areas, but the Council of Trent was uh, a meeting for Catholics in in response to the Reformation. Um, And at the Council of Trent, it it took them 18 years to solidify this. It's very long and old English, but the Council of Trent directly refutes sola fide or faith alone, and they said this in regards to this doctrine. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious, or the sinner, is justified, in such wise to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. So, what is the Council of Trent saying here? Is if you believe that you are saved by your faith alone, that you should be cursed. And that, according to their doctrine, that you will be cursed as a result of that belief. Um, And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Roman Catholic's view of justification, but you can see it here, is that you are required to cooperate with their grace. So uh, you're given grace, and you must act accordingly in order to see justification as a result of that grace. Uh, and, here, and here's kind of an overview of the Roman Catholic view of justification. is It begins with baptism. Baptism uh, is a requirement in the Roman Catholic Church. 
and they believe that that is the instrumental cause of justification. Instrumental being, this is where it begins. You must have this in order to begin justification. Um, and so, excuse me, this is, a, this is a good time to talk a little bit about sacramental theology, which is in the Roman Catholic Church. But more or less, here's, here's what that means. There, there are seven sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church, and each of those sacraments have a sort of physical element uh, that goes along with it. Baptism, water, confirmation, oil, Eucharist, bread, so on and so forth. And in each of those sacraments, the priest is going to instill grace into the physical element, right? You, you see this in the Eucharist with transubstantiation, right? This is the literal body of Christ. Or in baptism, it's, you know, the grace being infused to um, cooperate with justification. And when you take the sacrament, you are literally receiving grace, right? That, that's, that's that belief. It's a sacramental theology, which, you know, when we take communion this morning, um, who's leading it this morning? Dan, what are you going to say about communion this morning in regards to what, what you're going to get from the intake of the bread? Yes. Mm. Yeah. You're not going to wake up the next day any different. Um, but it should be a reminder for what Christ has done for us on the cross. So um, when you receive that grace through the elements, um, you will soon learn that that grace is not permanent. So there are what's called venial sins and mortal sins. I'm not sure if you're familiar with those terms. A venial sin is a sin that is not a big deal, and a mortal sin is a sin that is so significant that you lose your justification, and you have to get it back. And you get that justification back by penance. Penance. Um, so penance is a confession to a priest, an act of contrition, receiving priestly absolution. Then a work of satisfaction is performed to be restored. And it, and it is this uh, continual cycle, if, if you're a sinner, which we all are, where you receive justification, you lose it, you got to get it back. You're constantly cooperating with grace in order to be in a state of justification. Um, Thomas Schreiner says the Roman Catholic Church believes that grace, faith, and Christ are all necessary for the sinner's justification. They're necessary, but not sufficient. That's the big difference, right? Is we look at the wall, we see Christ, we see faith, we see grace, and we say that is all we need. We do not need anything else for salvation, uh, or even for that matter, for a life of godliness, um, but the difference here would say that the, that is not sufficient. You must cooperate with that grace. So that's the Roman Catholic view. The second would be um, a life uh, of obedience to the law. So the first would be the, the Catholic view or um, the, the works of the law. And, and we see this in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians. We're, we're going to spend a little bit of time today. Is that there's, there's this battle between grace and the law and Paul, in Galatians 3.10, says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And he's referencing two verses in Deuteronomy there. So th this thought would be that in order for me to be justified, for God to look at me and to say, You are good to go, that we must follow the law perfectly. Um, 
that we rely on obedience. So the, the Roman Catholic view would say the instrumental cause of justification is baptism. The instrumental cause of justification here would be obedience. In order for me to be justified, I must obey. Um, but that's not what the law is for, right? The, the, law, the law is for three things. The law is not meant to justify, but it's, it's meant to reveal, firstly. It's meant to reveal our sin to us. It's, you know, we want to be able to turn to the law or, you know, read the book of Romans or Ephesians and Philippians and see sin and say, I want to turn from my sin. Um, and we want our sin revealed to us. And it's, secondly, it's to direct to direct our paths. It's to give us guardrails. As we see the law and we say we want to avoid sin, we want to walk in holiness, we want to live in obedience. And finally, the law is meant to point. It's meant to point us to the one who fulfilled it. As Christ fulfilled the law, and even as we want to live in obedience, we see it. we're not. We're not living in obedience, but who did? And that's where our eyes should be. So, Sorry for the, the overview on things that we don't believe as a church, but I felt like it was necessary to understand, okay, why does it matter? We all believe in faith alone. No, we don't. Um, one billion people would say that they would subscribe to the, the thought that we're justified uh, starting with baptism and, and working their way back in the Catholic Church. So I think these, these are things that we as believers, we should, have a, we should have a firm understanding of why we believe uh, in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So, if the church doesn't justify us and the law doesn't justify us, what does? At some point, you know, we would say that all of us would long to be justified in the eyes of God. Um, And what the reformers taught and, and what we believe the Bible teaches is that the instrumental cause of justification is faith. I think often in America, we buy into this belief that um, God loves us just the way we are, no matter what. And some of you might hear that and you might like cringe. And, and, this, and I, uh, I shared this at our weekly meeting this past Wednesday. Um, and I like to because I think people buy into that lie and believe that's what the Bible teaches that from the beginning, God loves me no matter what. If I try my best, if I do good things, I'm a child of God. And I said, you're not a child of God. Unless, you know, we'll get to that. But if you look at Ephesians 2, the first three verses in Ephesians 2 talk about the type of child you are. And does anyone know the, the words you use to describe the type of child? It's not a child of God, but a child of wrath. Um, and, that is, and that is where all humans start. Living uh, for the passions of their flesh, and kind of the way that we describe this is, uh, what, what that means is it's, it's people who do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, for their own glory. That's, that's what that means. Is I'm going to do whatever I want. There's no rules. My life is about me. I'm going to please myself. Um, sorry. Jen just texted me. She's like, don't forget the thing under the coat rack before you leave. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, there's a good chance. <laughs> there's a good chance. I'll turn my phone off. Um, it's on silent. Nothing you can do about that. Um, okay. So th- this, is, this is obviously, as we, as we study God's word, specifically Ephesians 2, we see that 
this idea that we are all children of God is a misconception. And probably for some of you, even as like I say it out loud, you kind of cringe, right? You're like, is that true? Like, I really, I really not sure if that's true. Um, but the rationale is, is because we've all chose to live our lives for ourselves outside of Christ, that we are a child of wrath. Now, it, it obviously doesn't end there because we see verse 4 in Ephesians 2, which says, But God, who is deep in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, talked about that. It's like, okay, there, there's evidence that God loves you when you are dead in your trespasses. So he's not loving you when you start obeying or once you are justified, but he's loving you in your sin. If you were one of his people, he will redeem you. Um, and then Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. Uh, important, obviously. Um, and so there is a sense here that all people, because we are all children of wrath, need justification. Uh, this is what we were talking about with original sin in Romans 5. This is what we were talking about with total depravity, that all, all parts of our being are corrupted with sin, and we need righteousness. We need redemption. So go to Romans 4. We're going to spend a little bit of time here, and then I'm going to talk about righteousness, faith, and good works, and then we'll end. <clears throat> okay. Um, I'm going to start reading Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith has counted to him as righteousness. I was going to read the whole chapter. Um, I don't think we have enough time. I think those first five verses explain a lot of where Romans 4 is going, right? Um, just simply in verse 5. Into the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith has counted to him as righteousness. I just want to give a few thoughts from uh, Romans chapter 4. And the first is that we see that the law brings wrath. In verse 15, for the law brings wrath. <laughs> but where there's no law, there's no transgression. It's one of those, like, uh, you, you, you know, Ernie says all the time, like, don't make a verse, you know, don't try to, like, overthink this. And really quickly, I mean, he says, the law brings wrath. So under the law, if we try to live in obedience to the law, have righteousness through the law, um, the only thing that will come is wrath because we, we cannot obey the law perfectly. Um, how do you... Yeah, you get that. Uh -huh. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And this comes from Genesis 15, 6. Uh, and I think this is a, a beautiful picture of redemption throughout scripture. Is where, where, did, where do we see Abraham's justification coming from in the first book of the Bible? It's through his faith. And this was not offered just to the circumcised or for the Jews, but to all people who would believe. Not just for Abraham's sake, but for our own. So if the instrumental cause of justification is faith, what does faith do? I think I have this on a slide. Nope. Doing a good job here with my PowerPoint. 
Okay. Um, faith primarily does this, is it links us or joins us with Christ. So by faith, we receive the transfer, or another word for this is imputation, of the righteousness of Christ. So what does faith do first? Is Christ's righteousness, his perfect life, the life he lived, by faith, when we trust in him, that righteousness becomes our own. So faith is it's not only a necessary condition. So the Catholic Church say it is a necessary condition, but we would say faith is a sufficient condition. When we put our faith in Christ and we get his righteousness, we no longer need anything else. When we are justified as God's people, God sees us as Christ with that record, um, albeit undeserved. Faith trusts in and lays hold of a righteousness that is not our own. That's the beauty of grace and that's the beauty of faith is that righteousness that is imputed to us through Christ, you didn't deserve any of it. It goes back to the Matthew 18 parable of the unforgiving servant. You have an unforgivable debt, a debt you could never pay back. And when it's paid, when the king says you're forgiven, it was nothing that you did to be forgiven of that debt, but solely Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So back to the courtroom scene. When the judge says, you can be set free, what is the standard by which he sets you free? It's one word, righteousness. You, you as a human, and I as a human, are either going to be declared righteous or unrighteous on judgment day. So, what must this righteousness be? To, to be declared just, that righteousness must be flawless, perfect, untainted, no sin. And in that moment, when you have an untainted, flawless, perfect righteousness, God says you're justified. Uh, come in. And so here's the question. Is do we have the ability to be righteous? Why or why not? You mean us alone? Yes. If I say I am righteous. Before you would say I've trusted in Christ fully, how can you obtain righteousness as a non-Christian? I think would be the, the easier way. Does anyone have a guess why? Rick. Mm-hmm. But why not if I can just do 10%? Am I 10% righteous? Mm. Yes. Absolutely. Mm. Right. But what about the guy who says, you know, I get that I'm not perfect, but I've I've at least done some righteous things. Like I help the sick, I help the poor, I do some good things. Mm. All the greatest ingredients you can imagine in bananas with. And then at the very end, she took a bottle of dirt and sprinkled it on the top. And she said, now, who would eat this? Mm. That's sin. I mean, a perfect life with any sin is tainted. Wow. 
Just think. <laughs> yeah. Did he like it? <laughs> what what else on this? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Caleb? Could be. Yeah. Yeah. So, our, oh, yeah, go ahead. Let's get a couple more. I, this is a good question. Yes. Okay, let me, let me ask this example. So let's say you hear about a non-believer who, I don't know, he, he does something that he pays off a debt or helps the sick or helps the poor. Is that a righteous deed? Why or why not? No. Why? Amen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and this is this is where I was hoping we'd get is is R. C. Sproul um, in his book What Is Reformed Theology. One, one of my one one of the parts of that book that I remembered most was when he said, "Man in his sinful nature can only choose sin." Um, and you think about that, and, and why? Well, you, you think about this concept of total depravity, that every part of our being is corrupted with sin. That means even when we want to do something good outside of Christ, we're, we're going to be doing it for ourselves. Why am I holding this door open for you? I want you to look at me and think I'm a good person or you know, fill, fill in the motive. But outside of Christ, there is no righteousness in us. And if there is no righteousness in us, we cannot choose to be righteous. Um, and then, obviously, in Christ, we then have a, a conscience that, or the better term would be the Holy Spirit, right? And the Holy Spirit then enables us to choose to glorify God. And, yes? Yeah. Hmm. Yes, amen. Okay, so back to righteousness. So, since we do not have the ability to be righteous, where can we find it? Um, the, the term that Martin Luther uses is alien righteousness, which uh, it's an interesting word. 
Uh, and I have a quote here from Luther. I, I should put this on the PowerPoint, forgive me. He said, A Christian is righteous and holy by an alien or foreign holiness. I call this for the sake of instruction. That is, he is righteous by the mercy and grace of God. This mercy and grace is not something human. It is not some sort of disposition or quality in the heart. It is a divine blessing given us through the true knowledge of the gospel. When we know or believe that our sin has been forgiven through the grace and merit of Christ, is not this righteousness an alien righteousness? It consists consists completely in the indulgence of another and is a pure gift of God who shows mercy and favor for Christ's sake. Therefore, a Christian is not formally righteous. He is not righteousness. He is not righteous according to substance or quality. So what this alien righteousness is, is this. Is it's exactly what we've heard um, from the answers to these questions. Is that nothing in us is righteous. Therefore, we need an outside righteousness to be imputed into us. And that is what we get through faith in Christ is that Jesus Christ did live the perfectly righteous life. No sin, not tainted whatsoever, perfect, flawless. And when he died on the cross, he accomplished or, you know, began to set forth what we'd call atonement. And atonement is paying the penalty for our sin and us trusting in Christ, we're inheriting his righteousness in our account. So back to the illegal analogy, in the alien righteousness, when God looks at us and says, okay, why should I let you in? He doesn't see X, Y, Z from my past, but what does he see? He sees Christ nailing X, Y, Z to the cross. Um, as R.C. Sproul says, it is the legal application of his righteousness to us, which we are declared just. And that's the gospel. Yes. Yeah. They were supposed to be created by him for holiness. Yeah, well, until they decided to sin, there, there was no sin in them. Um, so, I, would, I mean, I would say yes, because at that time, you know, they, they were untainted, flawless in the image of God, um, and that, did not, that was not corrupted until the fall. Um, and as we'll see when we get into uh, the second point of tulip in a few weeks, that, um, yeah, we'll get there. Um, but yeah, good question. Uh, so what's so beautiful about uh, the doctrines of grace is they're so intertwined uh, that eventually there will be overlap. So I try to avoid it as much as possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we will see that God, God was sovereign and in control um, and had a plan for our salvation from the beginning. Um, anyway, so Martin Luther said, and this is in Latin, simul istus et peccator. Uh, I wish I sounded educated when I said that, uh, but I'm not. I don't know Latin. But what it means in English is at the same time sinner, or at the same time just and sinner. And just like we were talking about earlier, at, at, it, at its face, it's a paradox. It doesn't make sense. It's a contradiction. But what it is, is the gospel. In, in Romans 5.8, does anyone know it? Have it memorized? 
You, sh- you should have it memorized. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this is at the same time just and sinner. Because what do we see? That when Christ saw you, he saw you like he did in Matthew 9, 36-38. Harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. We were doing whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted, for our own glory. He saw us living in sin. And Christ wanted you. He wanted his elect. He wanted his people. And he came and he lived a perfectly righteous life, died a painful death, and even more than that, on the cross, separated from God, so that for all of those who would put their trust in him, they would be justified. They would stand before God, not as a sinner, or but as a sinner, sinner and, sinner and just, but clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that one day you will have a lifetime of sin debt stored up. But if you've trusted in Christ, you are immediately clothed in his righteousness. And that is the doctrine of justification. Uh, But I just want to talk a little bit about uh, this idea of saving faith. So if you read the book of James, you see that even the demons believe. So what is the difference between that belief and a saving faith? Um, So uh, R.C. helped me with this content as well with three Latin words that they may or may not be pronounced properly. Um, Okay, three qualities of saving faith. Um, The first one is speaking of the object or the content of your faith. In order for you to have saving faith, that faith must be in the right object, which in our case or the case would be in Christ. There must be a proper object of our faith. Um, it's not the belief where it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe in something. No, we would say saving faith is the belief in Christ, um, along with other essentials, you know, his holiness, his divinity, his resurrection, the object of our faith. The second is the intellectual acceptance of those beliefs. So Christ is holy, he's perfect and righteous, and I believe that. I, I trust in that. I, I believe that he is God, that he is resurrected. Um, I've put my hope in that, my trust in that. And, you know, we would say, or I would say, I think the Bible would say, that even the demons believe those first two things. Say, Jesus is God. He rose from the dead. He, he did those things. Uh, but the third type, uh, or the third quality of saving faith is, is what differentiates the two. Um, and this is the word for a trust a confidence, and a love for. Um, Saving faith loves the object of your faith, right? That is the big difference. Is this type of saving faith that is given to us by the Holy Spirit leads to a love for Christ and what he's done for you on the cross. Um, And I think... uh, Running out of time. Okay. Um, So when I first got to USI... Um, I, I grew up in Northwest Indiana, secular household, went to college in Indianapolis. Um, it's a unique city. It's great. I loved it. Um, but for the most part, when I was at IEPUI, the type of student I would interact with as a student was someone who, who was openly non-Christian. Like, it, it was a normal thing. Like, we're not Christians. We don't go to church. It's okay if you do, but most people don't. Um, and that was 
just how I assumed most people were. And then I moved to Evansville. And Evansville is, is fantastic. But this is the Bible Belt. This, from where I've lived and, and kind of the idea of the Bible Belt is, it is a, for the most part, a Christian culture. And you may disagree with that. Uh, that's okay. But from where I'm from, uh, this, would, this would be considered a, a Christian culture to me. Uh, and where you begin to see these qualities and, and why, you know, why they're important for study is in a culture where the vast majority attend a church or would claim to be a Christian. Um, and so many people that you'll interact with will say, oh, I'm a Christian, or, you know, I believe in Jesus. Uh, but what is what you may see in some, and, and what I think I've seen often um, at USI uh, is a separation between those first two and the third. Is I, I believe in Jesus and I believe what he's done for me on the cross, uh, but that is not applied to their life. You, you see no evidence for a love for Christ in their speech or in their actions. Uh, Thomas Schreiner, a Southern Baptist professor, says genuine faith is a living and active thing and it will inevitably produce results. So you hear that, in seven minutes, I'm going to talk about the tension between uh, good works and justification. Because there should be tension here, right? Uh, we believe, you know, we read in the book of James, that faith without works is, it's dead. So, how, what do you say to the person who is actively living in sin, but yet claims to have faith? We believe faith justifies them, not the actions that they do. So, at that point, we're kind of in a tough spot, right? Um, and hopefully... For the next few minutes, I can um, explain a little bit about my thoughts on that. Okay, so faith and works do go together. But, but here's what's important, is faith is what justifies us before God. So at the end of the day, where, how is God looking at you and saying, you are just or you are righteous? It is by faith alone, by his grace. It's important. Faith links us to Christ, where through it we are imputed with Christ's righteousness. It's required and it's sufficient. Nothing more, nothing less. But, and, and importantly, works don't justify, to make that clear, uh, but there should be evidence for our faith in our lives, right? There, there are times where, uh, and, and I think the evidence for this, you know, just in examples is how hurt we are when we see Christians who we love or respect or a well-known pastor fall into unrepentant sin, right? It, it, it's happening, you know, with how, what's the author that happened to recently? So one of you guys would know. There's like 10 different names. I'm like, oh, <laughs> wasn't expecting that. Um, but, but there's a reality where, where there is hurt and pain uh, in those who claim the name of Christ yet live unrepentantly. Um, and, and it should cause us as believers uh, to be reminded of a few things. That one, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. Um, but our lives do matter. And, and the way that we live and the way that we think, it, sh- it should be lived under a gratitude for what Christ has done for us on the cross. Is We look to the cross, we see Christ sacrificed for us, and we want to live in a way that glorifies him. In accordance to his word, we want to live in obedience. Not because it saves us, because we want to live a life pleasing to him. Um, so what should the doctrine of faith alone lead to? Just three things. Uh, and hopefully this uh, will set the tone for this morning is, is it should lead to worship. Um, 
should lead to worship to the God of grace, who by his son's sacrificial death on the cross, all of those who have genuine faith by his spirit uh, can come to him and worship. And songs and preaching of his word and fellowship with one another is we long for these doctrines to lead us to worship above all else. But second, it should lead us to compassion. And so, you know, you hear other views and, and that, that should not say, man, these, these people have it wrong and they're just, they're just messed up. But Jesus' posture to those who were harassed and helpless was compassion. Uh, and we, we should have compassion on those around us as well who, who disagree with us, uh, who don't know Christ, and, and that should lead to action, right? That should lead to prayer, that should lead to us building friendships with those who aren't like us, so that Lord willing that he would save um, our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers. It should lead to compassion. Um, and naturally, when you have compassion, uh, you're going to speak about Christ. That, that's what sh- compassion should lead you to, is to point people to the one who can ultimately give compassion. Um, and then finally, the doctrine of faith alone should lead to good works. Uh, our faith should propel us to a life of good works, not to earn something extra or extra credit or extra favor, uh, but rather to live a life of gratitude for what he's done for us on the cross. Um, that's what our faith um, should propel us to do. And I pray uh, that when people think of us at Faith Bible Church, that they would uh, see men and women who are worshiping, who have compassion, and who uh, are living life in obedience to the scriptures to glorify Christ. So let me pray, and then we'll get into Sunday worship. Um, Father God, just so thankful um, for your spirit, God, that you have um, redeemed um, your people through the blood of Christ. God, just thank you, um, God, for Christ, for his people. God, just pray, um, God, that as a result of us just spending time in your word and, and hearing and learning about faith, God, that that would propel us to worship to compassion, to good works. God, may we be a people who long to please you, God, and long to point people to your son. God, help us to do that. Pray for our service this morning, God, as we uh, take communion, God, that that would lead to intimacy with you and in fellowship with one another. God, we pray this in your son's name. Amen.